The future of America is in your hands. This is not a movie trailer, and it's not a political ad, but it is a call to action. I'm Mila Atmos, and I'm passionate about unlocking the power of everyday citizens. On our podcast, Future Hindsight, we take big ideas about civic life and democracy and turn them into action items for you and me. Every Thursday, we talk to bold activists and civic innovators to help you understand your power and your power to change the status quo. Find us at futurehindsight.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. Politics has never been stranger or more online, which is why the politics team at Wired is making a new show, Wired Politics Lab. It's all about how to navigate the endless stream of news and information and what to look out for. Each week on the show, we'll dig into far-right platforms, AI chatbots, influencer campaigns, and so much more. Wired Politics Lab launches Thursday, April 11th. Follow the show wherever you get your podcasts. Now, imagine a robot that not only looks and sounds like a human, but thinks and expresses emotions like one too. Uh, it may sound like the stuff of science fiction, but with Sophia, one of the world's most intelligent robots, it's become a reality. According to the FBI, there's a major new category of these scams, crypto dating scams, where fraudsters convince people to put their money into fake cryptocurrency investments. This is one device, and we are calling it iPhone. The Pfizer and Moderna vaccines went from blueprint to rollout fast, but not as fast as many think. Ready? This type of technology has been in the works for decades. Autonomous driving is a big technological challenge, probably the biggest of our generation. This is a Tesla. It comes with a feature known as autopilot, and Elon Musk says in the future, it'll have a feature called full self-driving. What could go right? We are here at the Progress Network having an ongoing series of conversations with compelling people. I am Zachary Carabell, the founder of the Progress Network, and I'm here as always with Emma Varvalukas, the executive director of the Progress Network. And today we're gonna have a conversation that's a little less focused, a little more broad, and that totally suits the person that we are having the conversation with, who is broad-minded, eclectic, unusual, polymathic, curious, delightful, the kind of person that you really, really, really want to have a long meal with. But in lieu of that, we're gonna just have a somewhat long conversation with. So Emma, tell us a little bit about Tyler Cowen. Tyler Cowen is the Holbert L. Harris Chair of Economics at George Mason University, and also serves as Chairman and General Director of the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. He's the co-author of the popular economics blog, Marginal Revolution, with colleague Alex Tabarrok, who's also a Progress Network member. And he's also the co-founder of the online educational platform, Marginal Revolution University, where you can learn about economics. So Tyler, thank you for being with us today and having what I am sure I feel in my bones is going to be one of the epochal conversations of our era. So you wrote a book 10 years ago, 11 years ago, called The Great Stagnation. And I highlight that. I know you've talked about this a lot over the years because at least nominally, given that we are the Progress Network, that points to if not the antithesis, then certainly in a rather different direction to the notion of progress, which was things tomorrow will be better than things yesterday, and things yesterday were better than the day before, and on and on and on, and some 
seamless, wonderful gallop forward into the future. And while that's not really my ethos, and it's not really the ethos of the Progress Network, it's much more the idea of how do we create the progress that we need, want, and expect, not that there's some sort of ineluctable, magical pathway that's preset, preordained, if you just get the right formula. But I wonder, you have said, I think, recently, and maybe you can expound on this a bit, that there's a bit of a hurry up, go slow, or in this case, go slow, hurry up. The, this period, this kind of caesura between intense growth or intense progress, later part, middle of the 20th century into the later part, and then slowing down precipitously until you wrote the book, you feel, particularly with biotechnology and some of the tools of the internet, maybe, I guess, re-accelerating. Is that fair? Am I getting that right? And maybe you can tell me why I'm getting that wrong and, and expound on that a bit. Uh, that is correct. My view is that starting in about 1973, rates of economic growth, rates of productivity growth fell noticeably. Now, I think we're in a different time now, but I'm not entirely sure. Obviously, the pandemic came along, so GDP drops a lot. But that's not a technology problem per se. We do see that mRNA vaccines are created to fix the problem rather rapidly, uh, from my point of view, that counts as about 10 years worth of progress condensed into a pretty small number of months. Now, that doesn't mean major advances will continue, but it's actually my best guess that they will. So we will see. Ralph Stothit just wrote a New York Times column in January, a few months ago, where he says, uh, well, we had this chance to get out of the mess, but actually we're being dragged back into it. I'm more hopeful than that. I mean, Emma, you you highlighted, I think, in one of the newsletters that we put out, the degree to which, and obviously other people have been highlighting this as well, that the mRNA technology were totally focused, as we should be, for this two-year period on on what it's done in terms of COVID vaccines. But the sort of, you know, what that opens up for everything else is just extraordinary, monumental, you know, who knows where that will all lead. And it seems to be more than just mRNA vaccines. With COVID cases dropping, mRNA technology is setting its sights on a new complex target. Now, the science behind some of those vaccines could be deployed against other deadly diseases. Moderna is taking aim at human immunodeficiency virus, or HIV. So uh, malaria vaccines are in advanced stages. There's talk of fixing a lot of sickle cell anemia. There's serious talk about fixing dengue, which would all be major advances. And I think the common thread is a kind of democratization of access to extreme computing power amongst scientists, and also that scientists can use, whether it's WhatsApp or Twitter, or just plain old email, they use information technology to communicate with each other much more rapidly, find talent. We draw talent from many parts of the world. And when good things like that happen, I think it actually takes much longer to turn them into final stuff than a lot of people think. But there have been a lot of positive headwinds, maybe for two decades, that have sort of looked really good, made for cool articles in the Atlantic, but didn't quite get converted into stuff. And, and now my intuition is the mRNA vaccines are, are not even the main thing. They're just the first thing we see, and they're a big deal. They should be a big deal because like, they work now against this terrible threat. But I think there's much more coming. And again, it's the final development of trends that had been in the works for 20 years. Do you have any sense of what else might be coming? Because, you know, like you're saying, we've seen the proof of the pudding of mRNA. Outside of mRNA, what do you think like those applications that Zachary talked about that are opening up to us? Like, what are we 
looking at into the future here? I think artificial intelligence is a somewhat misused term. It is too broad. But you look at something like GPT-3, you talk to people who are working on advanced AI, uh, you very much get the feeling that much of that is coming to fruition. I think just the largest tech companies, obviously, they benefit from scale. That means overall, they're, they're much more productive when they get to a very large size. And we're in a period now where they've been at stably very large sizes for a while. I think just accruing gains from scale from ordinary consumer retail tech. I think a talent search, the number of talented people uh, we find in South Asia, especially India, is uh, relatively new. And uh, that's going to change the world, just like getting American scientists into the game changed the world for the British. So I don't think it's just one trend. I think it's many trends, mostly stemming from the internet. They just take longer to really work than many people think. But you can find their roots in the 1990s. You know, that raises an interesting question, which is if the consolidation of these mega tech players, which also then gives them certainly more cash in hand for types of moonshot AI or moonshot R&D, and you certainly saw this with, with Google and Google X, that could suggest that the the moves toward breaking these companies up, both in the United States and the curtailing of them in China, because obviously the Chinese internet giants like Baidu and Alibaba have also been significant investors and players in this particular space. Could you make an argument that uh, for whatever the the competitive benefits of, of antitrust activity, that they may not be so good for research development and the progression of the things that you've just alluded to? I don't want to split up any of those companies. So you think of Google, right? Well, now Alphabet, but what was Google? Gmail is free. Uh, Google Maps, right? Parts of the advances behind driverless cars come through uh, Alphabet, formerly Google. So again, those are pretty major advances. There was a January announcement from Meta, formerly Facebook, uh, that Meta would soon have the world's fastest supercomputer. Now, I don't know much about that. Maybe it, it won't amount to much, but it's like, hey, it's something to sit up and take notice of. Amazon still delivers you an incredible variety. Super reliable delivery was a kind of lifesaver during the pandemic. So I think those are great companies. Uh, I think we should be supporting them, not attacking them for the most part. I'm not saying I agree with everything they do. But the overall cost-benefit calculus is highly favorable. Todd, can you actually do me a favor and go back and explain what GPT-3 is? It's not a term I'm familiar with, and I'm curious what the potential is there. GPT-3 is an artificial intelligence tool that basically can create very smart text, much better than you might think. So, for Hmm. instance, a friend of mine scanned the text record of things I've written and said, like the transcripts of my podcasts, and scanned the text record of things Donald Trump had said and used GPT-3 to create an imaginary dialogue between myself and Donald Trump. Hmm. The the computer's doing it. And it was remarkable how good it was and how close it came to what I would imagine such a dialogue to be like. Now, that's a kind of trivial, fun, personal use. But the extent to which what we broadly call AI is not just doing number crunching, but it does things that look like thinking and it's working. Uh, That has been happening faster over the last decade than most people had been expecting. Again, a lot of it hasn't been converted into final stuff yet. I want to stress that point, but I think we're on the verge the next five, 10 years, you'll be seeing actual things in your lives or just like translation, right? 
from one language to another. That's working pretty well. In, in three years, it will be much better. It was already the case three years ago, pre-pandemic, I could go to China, use my smartphone in a taxi, translate everything using a simple program. Uh, they had the app. I had the app. It's going to be more of that. It will be better. It will be quicker. It will be like that Star Trek universal translator. I just see much more of that on the way. And it, it will actually matter for our lives and not just be cool articles like in Wired. So the the camp that talks about the uh, massive dangers of sentient AI or more sophisticated AI and you know, some of the people who are most agitated at the potentials of AI are people who have been in this world. You know, people like Kai-Fu Lee and some of the people at Google who are, I mean, Elon Musk, of course, at any given day, Elon Musk will say three different things, all of which contradict each other. So I'm not sure exactly where he stands in that. But there is, particularly amongst people in, in Silicon Valley, a, a high level of anxiety about the potential cliched unlocking unleashing that genie and what what it will what it will do whether or not we're going to be in some sort of isaac asimov i robot you know we'll 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 create these tools that will protect us uh at the cost of our freedom do you feel that there is anything there or is that just another moment in time where human beings panic inordinately about the the downside brave new world promises of technology. I think it's hard to judge from this distance and it's hard for me to judge as a non-specialist. Uh, but even the doomsayers I observe, they're all along the market, right? They hold portfolios of different stocks. They make venture capital investments. I, I don't mean to call them hypocrites. I don't think they are. I think they're fully sincere in their worries, but at the end of the day, their acting selves, I, I suspect represent their real views. And I would just say my main worry is humans using weapons, including AI, of course, cyber warfare, nuclear weapons, and destroying each other. And that's been a recurring theme in human history. That is not a speculative worry. So whatever you think of Skynet goes live, there's still this rather extreme danger that humans will use current and pending weapons to achieve immense acts of destruction. And I think we should we should be much more worried about that. So I would say focus our worry on the thing that, like we're sure, is a big danger. Skynet goes live might be a worry on top of that. But before the AI gets that smart, just having humans use it for nefarious purposes. Any new technology is also a weapon, right? I don't have the fixes for that. I mean, speaking of new tech, how do you see you know crypto and Web3 and all of this stuff fitting into this picture? I saw an article recently that was like, it's not just you. Everybody is completely confused by Web3 and crypto. That's how I feel. I'm wondering how you feel about it. You know, for quite a few years, I was a crypto skeptic. It looked to me like a bubble or some parts of it a scam. Some parts still are a scam, of course. Uh, but over time, I, I've grown increasingly optimistic. I now call myself a crypto hopeful. I'm not convinced, but I see the potential. And if you look at something like decentralized finance, the notion that we could achieve you know, savings, borrowing, and lending, maybe across the globe, from richer people to poorer people with higher rates of return, in essence, through software, with fewer barriers, less regulation, we still need to make it happen. But I think that's a very real and concrete and tangible use case. There's a very good chance it can work. I'm worried the regulators will kill it or overly restrict it. Uh, but it's not just some bubble. It's been around too long at too high a price to be a bubble, right? So the market could be wrong, but we definitely need to take it seriously. 
and the notion that you will be able to have a new system of property rights and contracts and lending and financial arrangements and payments online at a much lower cost, I think the chance of that now is, say, 60-40. So again, I'm cautiously hopeful about crypto and Web3. And of course, it can simultaneously have aspects of a bubble and be transformative. There's like the people who are just in it to make a profit, like the pure speculators, and there are lots of those. Um, and they sort of stand around the perimeter of the room and they're wearing like Patagonia vests and you could, they're like sort of jotting notes to themselves. And then there are the crypto wealthy, the people you mentioned who just like have tons of money and want to spend it on something that feels cool to them. I do think there is a core of sort of true believers, like people who believe that NFTs are solving something fundamentally wrong with the economy, especially for artists and musicians and creative people, which is like, it kind of sucks to be a musician on the internet today. You have to be on Spotify because that's where everyone is and you get millions of streams and then you get a check for $17. You know, your record label rips you off and you get into contract disputes. And it's like it's like not a great status quo for a lot of creative people. And so I do think you have people, and I've talked to a lot of artists and musicians who like genuinely do think that this is going to be sort of the salvation of creative pursuits in the digital economy. That was Kevin Roos. He covers NFTs, crypto, AI, and social media as a columnist for the New York Times, talking with MSNBC's Chris Hayes in December of 2021 on his podcast, Why Is This Happening?, about some of the perceived values and struggles with the crypto slash NFT market. I mean, people have written about bubbles over the years that they can be actually, you know about this better than anyone, um, ways for sort of crowdfunding with a little bit of hysteria, things that ultimately require massive investment to be transformative. So it's true that a lot of people lose their money, the railroads being the best example. But they actually got the railroads built, which paved the way for the next transformative moment, similar to the telecom bubble of the late 1990s. And that's the most likely scenario for crypto, in my view. Like most of it will end up as a waste and lose money. That's true of most things. It was true uh, of the earlier years of the internet. Uh, but some of it will stick and be really important. I, I just, I'm dying to ask now, since you mentioned that you think some of it's a scam, what parts do you think are a scam? Well, there's so many crypto assets out there. I mean, more than I can count, right? And I'm, whether I'm optimistic, pessimistic on a given day, I'm really pretty sure most of them won't last. And that's fine. Like most rock bands don't make it, right? Mm. Most novelists <laughs> don't make it. There's nothing new in that, nothing wrong with that. But that said, crypto in particular, there is this lure of easy money that makes people gullible or overly confident. And I think we'll even see it to a more extreme degree than we have in a lot of other areas. So if you're an individual, be cautious. But from a social point of view, I would just say it's not surprising. You know, let's try to get more of the better side of it and and less of the scams. And that starts with user education. Yeah. It's not like you put your money on an aspiring novelist. So, Well, some people put their money on aspiring novelists. Yeah, publishing houses do. A very small circle of people. Hey, everybody, I'm Scott Schaefer. And I'm Marisa Lagos. We're the hosts of Political Breakdown, a show that pulls back the curtain on the people and forces driving politics in the Golden State from KQED in San Francisco. 
And now, ahead of the 2024 election, we are bringing you even more. More conversations with the top movers and shakers at the state capitol and in national politics. But the dyslexia was the greatest gift that ever happened to me. Nothing was rote. Nothing was linear. I had to work around things, work differently, see the world differently. And I say that to young people and say, know how important your participation is. And I think it's the time for this generation to put forward new voices. More reporting with analysis. It's been a very good session for organized labor. but Hot labor summer. Hot labor summer. It's turning out to be a nice fall as well. More politics with personality. I've sweat election day my entire life. (laughs) (laughs) We we hear that. Political breakdown daily. Every weekday, we'll break down what's happening and why it matters. With news that informs, surprises, and maybe even inspires you. Political Breakdown goes daily starting January 8th. Hey, it's Emma. They say you should learn something new every day. It's good advice, but with so much to do in your daily life, how are you going to make the time to learn and stay curious about our world? Well, with everything everywhere daily, you can easily make that goal an actual reality. Everything Ever Daily is one of the world's most popular daily education podcasts and a top three history podcast. In about 10 minutes, you can learn something new every day. The show covers history, science, geography, mathematics, and technology, as well as biographies from some of the world's most interesting people. Fans of the show are so passionate that you even work to join the Completionist Club, the group of dedicated listeners who have listened to every single one of the show's more than a thousand and counting episodes. All of the episodes are informative, interesting, and best of all, always under 15 minutes. So go ahead, learn something new every single day with Everything Everywhere Daily. Find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. So I'm, I'm curious about the uh, some of what you've talked about in terms of GDP growth as a normative good and uh, a necessity. This is something I've written about, you've written about, thought about for a while. We had a conversation a while back with Diane Coyle, who's written a lot about the limitations of GDP and and different ways of looking at something. You know, on the one hand, we've got all these fantastic innovations. They don't get well measured in GDP. And how on earth would you place a value on the vaccines that are going to avert lots of deaths and illness? Um, And on the other hand, we have the aftermath of the pandemic and the catastrophe and we've got all the uh, resource implications of climate change and biodiversity loss. And how do you how do you weigh those up together in one number? Well, that's that's really hard to do. And without belaboring the the question of has GDP been an appropriate proxy for overall societal advancement and good, which you've written cogently about and is likely to be the case, I have the question of whether or not that will continue to be the case, particularly in a 21st century world where one of the great unexamined challenges is going to be uh, depopulation. It's going to be the first time in modern, if ever, human history that we know of where the population of the world, maybe since the, the great death of the 14th century, 13th century, where the population will shrink. And you know, it raises the question of Japan, right? Is Japan's zero GDP growth or almost zero GDP growth for the past decade plus really been a negative? And can you have higher levels of individual and collective affluence? But if it's going to be a population contraction, you might not really have much GDP growth. And yet you will have many of the things 
the beneficial aspects of technological and material advancement, particularly given the deflationary aspects of technology. So what do you, what do you make of that? Because again, you've looked at GDP as a pretty good proxy for more GDP is better for society, less GDP is more GDP growth is better, less GDP growth is worse. I do view depopulation as a major problem. I would stress that many poorer societies face already the same problem, Iran, Mexico, actually most of them outside of Africa. I'm not sure how to fix it, but but I would wager this, that the countries that do the best job fixing it are the wealthier countries who A, can afford it for a while, who B, you know, if some form of birth subsidies works, as it has in France, but hasn't in many places, it's the wealthy countries that can afford it. Uh, whatever innovations we might come up with, whether in, in, in child rearing or, or whatever, again, I think the wealthier countries will be there first. So uh, it's an underrated problem. I suspect we will solve it well, you know, one way or another, if only for Darwinian reasons, that over time, people who really like having kids become a larger share of the population. But we need to get on it. If I were a South Korean, I'd be very worried. They have one of the world's lowest fertility rates. But couldn't you imagine a world that is more Japan-ish in that shrinking and or stagnant populations with high levels of technology and high levels of material affluence can be stable? There's not the same fight for resources because resources end up being, if not plentiful, then exceed you know, the amount of humans clamoring for them. So why does it have to be a negative, per se? I don't think it's stable. You have too many countries losing influence, losing geopolitical power. Uh, you will have some countries, arguably the United States, doing a pretty good job of taking in immigrants, and those countries won't have shrinking populations. Most resource problems become better with higher wealth and more innovation and more people. Not all of them. You can't say that about carbon emissions. But as we've had, say, many more people, basically the price of food has gone down. Uh, the price of most good environmental amenities has gone down, not up. People live with cleaner air. We can afford the proper kinds of regulation. I can imagine countries that have super tight norms. They're highly ordered. Japan is an example. If they don't have too much debt, they might live with a declining population. Uh, but even when I go to Japan, it strikes me as a less fun place than it was a few decades ago. I think there's just less spark, less dynamism. Uh, I don't want to live in that kind of society that always feels like it's on the decline. And that's an important part of the picture, too. There was a really interesting article in Works in Progress magazine yeah. that was called Natalism for Progressives and why we should you know, be looking at uh, this issue. And for me, it, like the sort of missing voice in this conversation, if we take this problem to be a problem like Tyler's view, is motherhood is a really tough sell. You know, for someone, I think, who's coming from a fairly affluent country and just speaking a little bit personally, like, it does not look that appealing. And I don't know how to solve for that uh, because it's more of a cultural problem than it is necessarily. Well, there's also an economic problem that maybe could be solved by something like subsidy, but it's also, I think, a cultural issue. Like, why would I want to necessarily go through that? Our daughter just had a baby, so I see firsthand how, how difficult some things can be. Uh, if I look back at history in the 1920s, there was a fertility crisis, and people asked, you know, when or why will people want to start having children again? Uh, I suspect it will take big social changes. But if I look, say, at France, France is back to a total fertility rate of two. England, I'm not sure about the whole UK, but at least England is back to a total fertility rate of two. Uh, I don't think we're going to get to three, 
But getting to two is not utopian. We have two highly successful Western countries that have done it already. Doesn't mean they'll keep it. So uh, I think religion may come back in our world. Mm. That will probably encourage people to have more children. Uh, we will see. And the notion that very advanced technologies, not things on the margin, but very advanced, may lead us to create children in ways we're not currently considering. Uh, I think sooner or later that would happen, whether or not we think it's an entirely wise way to go. Well, two would simply maintain population at a fairly static level, right? It, we would not we would not see what we've seen for the past 200 years, which is the population of the world went from barely a billion, probably less than a billion in 1800, and then basically hockey-sticked until the present. And clearly, it's not going to reach UN projections at one point, you know, turn of the millennia, we're for 12 billion by 2050, which seems highly unlikely at this point. And that was a cause of great anxiety, right? I mean, we, these things have oscillated from the tenor you're taking now, which is that depopulation or, or barely stagnant population is a problem from a period of time 20, 30 years ago, where the widespread assumption was that overpopulation was a critical threat to resources, to the planet, to our ability to feed, you know, kind of a, a Malthusian trap redux. I would note in Africa, an Africa population is still rising. So if the West and Asia were static, uh, African fertility rates have not declined with income the way many people had been expecting. I'm not sure why that is, and it may just be some kind of lag. But that will repopulate the world over time, you know, in all these scenarios. Right, unless it, it changes. And I think Nigeria is already shifting into a much lower year of population growth than it was, it being among the more affluent. I mean, it may be completely corrupt and have government problems, although these days one kind of looks around the world and goes, who doesn't? I think our days of lecturing the world about, you know, their corruption and government problems are are, are clearly, we should clearly take a pause on that particular uh uh, narrative. There's a lot of different countries in Africa, a lot of different experiments. So you could have many of them, you know, approach, say, replacement fertility, and you'd have still quite a few others that were not. Many of those countries are large, larger than they look on the map, which distorts their size. So I think there's a lot of what you would call population vitality in Africa under most scenarios, even if you think the more successful countries sort of follow the path of, say, Mexico or other wealthier, poorer countries that have seen sharply declining fertility. So Tyler, I want to ask you a question, not as an economist, but as a sort of prodigious gatherer of information. Um, I feel like what you do on Marginal Revolution and on your podcast, it's like sort of a modern day Renaissance man in terms of the, the breadth of topics that you cover. Um, and I'm curious if there's a topic that you've changed your mind about recently, where either you were like, you know what, I was really wrong about this, or with a you know deeper thought, you were like, actually, this is where I'm going to go. I, I would say on most topics, I've changed my mind. We mentioned crypto already, right? Uh, what I view is this impending phenomenal set of advances in biomedicine. I wouldn't say I was skeptical 10 years ago. I just wasn't sure. And now I'm pretty sure that it's happening. Uh the, the causes of the financial crisis of 2008, 2009, that I've changed my mind on two or three times. I now think it actually wasn't much of a housing bubble. Look at how those prices have come back. They were like a little bit ahead of their time, but everyone was so upset, like, oh my goodness, we built too many homes. How could we have made that mistake? And I was hanging my head like a sheepdog. Oh, I didn't see that one. But it turns out most of those homes we should have built, some regions clearly did go crazy near Orlando, near Las Vegas. But for the most part, 
the problem, I think, was a kind of panic over real estate that was unjustified. Not that it was that much of a bubble. So that's a mind change. First, I thought, no big problem. Then everything fell apart. And I was like, oh, my God, how did I miss this one? And now with a bit more time, I'm like, you know, I was sort of right in the first place, not exactly right. And I certainly didn't see the panic. But to think, you know, we should be building most of these homes now seems like the correct view again. Mm. So on, on most things, I changed my mind. You're, you're welcome to ask more topics. Well, the panic was fueled by the derivative exposure around housing. I mean, in the housing bubble, it, in and of itself, there have been multiple housing bubbles that had gone up and gone down. And, you know, for instance, there have been multiple housing bubbles in, in the Chinese real estate market. Uh, end of 2021, there was, you know, a good bit of concern over the largest property developer in China, Evergrande, going out of business. And, but if you look at China over the past 30 years, there have been these really sharp, real estate bubbles forming and then the government pops them societies can handle it's not fun to be on the wrong end of that particular equation they can handle real estate bubbles it was this kind of massive derivative magnification of it which could have been around anything it just happened to be housing oh sure but if housing hadn't crashed we wouldn't have had the derivatives problem right. but we also learned we can patch up that problem and maybe we weren't sure like in october of 2008 but once it happened it was still ugly, but it's like, hey, the Fed did this. They mostly made the money back. Derivatives are zero sum. Like if you have enough credibility and political will, you can at least put your fingers in the dike. And we did. And it sort of worked, right? Worked enough compared to how bad it looked at the time. So on the on the, on Emma's question of you're someone who's often at the epicenter of a lot of different ideas and a lot of different discussions, economical and and cultural and psychological, you name it. There is a tendency, I think, in contemporary America, particularly in high levels of political polarization, to look back to some time where ideas were engaged in some arena with boundaries and that at the end of it, everyone could kind of agree that that was a good argument and then go have a drink. And that there's a perception that, that whatever that was isn't anymore. Having been in the fray of people having heated debates, whether it's theories of economics, whether it's housing bubble, whether it's, you know, should we spend more, should we spend less? Do you feel that that's true or is that a, a look backwards through rose-tinted glasses? I think every age has its pluses and minuses. So I was recently looking at some older issues of the New York Times in the 1960s. It's remarkable for a long time how little they discussed the Vietnam War. That was a huge mistake in my view, that war. Like today, it wouldn't last a week on Twitter. <laughs> so there's other problems with Twitter, which I wouldn't deny, but it's all comparative. And the idea that there was once like Walter Cron Cronkite was so wise, you know, until pretty late in the war, very few Americans spoke out against the war or knew it was terrible. For it seems now more certain than ever that the bloody experience of Vietnam is to end in a stalemate. But it is increasingly clear to this reporter that the only rational way out then will be to negotiate, not as victors, but as an honorable people who lived up to their pledge to defend democracy and did the best they could. And again, that wouldn't happen today. You might have too many critics of different things we do, right? To, to allow a level of trust. But there never was a golden age. I agree. To me, it seems like the one of the problems of this age is the overflow of information. And that strikes me in terms of the breadth of topics that you cover as well, that 
you must go through just enormous amounts of information and you're able to connect the dots, you're able to synthesize. And it seems to me like a really important skill just for everybody in this day and age to be able to do that. Because I hear a lot of people talking about just simple overwhelm. Do you think that's an innate talent or is that something that can be learned? And do you think that people who are being born you know, now are going to have that capacity at greater levels than the rest of us? I do think of myself as a kind of information arbitrageur. I think some of it can be learned, but some of it is a natural skill that I can read very quickly. So I can read like not just a little faster than most people, but really a lot faster. Mm. And I mean, see people of comparable education. And that's just luck. I, I, I was born with that. Uh, but I think you can conceive of social media as a kind of computer. And if you know how to tap the keys, you can extract truth from it. But you can also tap the keys in different ways and be badly misled or manipulate other people. So what I observe is the variance increasing. I'm not sure about the average or the mean. But sort of the smart people are getting smarter and the people who believe screwed up things, there's more rabbit holes for them to go down to that seem to be getting more and more screwed up. So that higher variance worries me. But I think if you're dedicated to being, you know, on the better side of that distribution, you can do way better than ever before. That's like a lot of people. It's not just a few people. Do you read uh, more quickly for pleasure as well? I I find when I'm in kind of information extraction mode, I'm content to speed up the process. But if I'm in, I want I want to luxuriate in a story or history that I don't know or prose that is particularly intoxicating, I'm much less likely to want to gallop through it. It's all pleasure for me. Information extraction is my greatest pleasure. But that said, more concretely, I don't think I read Proust that much faster than other people. Maybe a little, but not much. Particularly not in the French. I read it in German, uh, which was interesting. Yeah. I think it was better in German than English, yeah. partly because the German forced me to slow down all the more, and I enjoyed it more. I love this quote, that information extraction is uh, your greatest pleasure. The government of Kenya pledged to end gender-based violence by 2026. The Ministry of Health in Uganda is trying to eradicate yellow fever. It's ambitious to make these kinds of pledges, but it is much harder to achieve these lofty goals. Are these leaders really delivering on these promises for women and girls? Tune into a new season of The Hidden Economics of Remarkable Women, a podcast from Foreign Policy, as reporters across Africa meet courageous women holding leaders accountable in various sectors, including healthcare, startups, and the government. Listen to Hidden Economics of Remarkable Women wherever you get your podcasts. History doesn't repeat itself, but it often rhymes. That may be a Mark Twain quote, but it's just as true today as when he originally said it. My History Can Beat Up Your Politics is a podcast that compares and contrasts history to the current events of today. Host Bruce Carlson has recently done deep dives on fascinating topics like the fall of the Soviet Union, which sets the stage for today's geopolitics, the man who was in prison and still won a million votes for the presidency, and the mystery behind George Washington's involvement, or lack thereof, in the Bill of Rights. My History Can Beat Up Your Politics offers deep context to all these historic stories, especially those that you may think you know well, and is particularly adept at relating them to current events. So don't miss out. Listen to My History Can Beat Up Your Politics on all platforms. Hello, I'm Jeffrey Brown. Welcome to Artbeat at the PBS NewsHour. And joining me today is Nicholas Carr, author of The Shallows, What the Internet is Doing to Our Brains. 
this began with a provocative article a couple of years ago titled, Is Google Making Us Stupid? And, and so what are we losing in terms of our thinking process, our ability to think more deeply? What we're losing is the ability to pay deep attention to one thing over a prolonged period of time. Is it also possible, though, that the gadgets that are connecting us to the Internet are themselves evolving, perhaps in ways that might help us in the future? I think it's, it, it would be nice to think that these will evolve in a way that return us to our attention span. But unfortunately, I think the way they're going to evolve is the way that the net has evolved up until now, which is pushing even more distractions and interruptions on us pretty much all day long. I wonder about the noise of media and, and sort of computer media. And we're a little bit guilty as charged in adding to the noise, or at least part of the Progress Network goal was to amplify noise that we thought wasn't noisy enough and, and tone down the, the noise that we think is too noisy. But I've been wondering about too much consumption of variegated sort of online shorter media and not enough consumption of books. And I'm trying to, because no matter how quickly you do any of this, right, you're still, you're still making a choice of a minute spent that you, you cannot duplicate, right? You get one choice of your one minute. So do you think that there's more value in books? Like if you had to, if you had to apportion your time sort of between, you know, books and long form magazines and podcasts and news, whatever that means, like all the noise on the internet, how would you do it? I don't know. I, I, tr I try to do both like all day long, all night long. A lot of books aren't that good, right? They should be much shorter. <laughs> they're boring. They're too academic, whatever. In a funny way, books are overrated. And there's a lot of smart people who aren't on Twitter at all. And they just like, don't even know what's going on, right? It would be like not having any media almost. So that, that also seems wrong to me. I think you have to ask, like, what's your individual position? But I don't always come down in favor of books. You know, I can read 20, 30 books and be disappointed like 20, 30 times in a row. That's not so unusual. Uh, every day, Twitter's fun. And it's fun because it's, for me, information extraction to get back to that. So I think it's Twitter that's grossly underrated by smart people. So the, the pushback on Twitter as being a, a, a pit of unmitigated id where people are not interested in engaging ideas, but they are interested in the loudest ad hominem, the most pithy put down. Um, you have a more hopeful take on Twitter. Obviously, we have a more hopeful take on Twitter. No, that's totally true. That's totally true <laughs> what you say. But it's like the bubbles, like the railroads get built, right? <laughs> so Twitter's all those things. If you want to use it well, uh, it's one of the, the greatest educational resources humans have ever built, along with YouTube. It's a curation game. Like If you follow the right people on Twitter, I also... I didn't really get on Twitter until we launched the Progress Network. And undoubtedly, Twitter has made me much more informed and smarter uh, because we happened to be running an organization where I had to create a list of insanely smart and informed people. And then I became you know, smarter and more informed. So if you use it well, I agree. Like It's, it's incredible. Uh, if you don't use it well, well, yeah, you fall in the traps. But I do wonder about books as a you know, aren't they supposed to be an artistic experience and they're supposed to be a lived experience as far as reading them? And I wonder about the kind of what Zachary was pointing out a little bit that the internet and the, the 
alacrity of information coming at you has broken our attention spans a little bit in terms of especially reading fiction books. Well, if I look at some recent novels, you know, you have Ferrante's four volumes. They're masterful. I think they're as great as, say, the great 19th century novels. You have the first two volumes of Canascard, My Struggle, which are quite long. Again, I would put those in the top tier of literary works, you know, in, in the last few centuries. And both of those are like very recent. So what else will stand the test of time? Like, you know, maybe Hulebeck, those are shorter, but like Submission is wonderful. There's plenty coming out. Uh, I'm just not so pessimistic about it. Latin American fiction over the last few decades. So... I just don't see that books are dead. I don't see that long form is dead. You can have different opinions. Like there's always been dry spells. Like you have Mozart, Haydn, Beethoven. That's like amazing. Then there's a while, like there's never really been anyone up to those people as composers. Like that's okay. There's still incredible music of all sorts in later eras. It's funny. I read, uh, I think I, I got through two and a half volumes of Knausgaard and uh, while I was reading it, all I could think to myself was, why am I reading these books? Like, what, what, what is drawing me into this often mundane, you know, moment-by-moment digression of this individual's life who is not leading an incredible, I mean, incredibly fascinating life. We all presumably lead incredible lives, or at least we all narcissistically believe that we are leading incredible lives. But there was a degree of, I, I, I'm reading it, and I'm drawn in in a kind of like watching paint dry sort of way. I was confused at myself. I'm actually curious about us as readers, like if we've lost the ability to read long form rather than the uh, artistic um, worth of the of the product. Because I look around at people my age, I don't see a lot of people my age reading War and Peace for fun, not because they're not interested but because it's just frankly incredibly long and their attention spans don't work like that anymore. Well, Harry Potter, Harry Potter books have been very popular. They're very long. I don't love them personally. Uh, I suspect we're seeing a hollowing out of the middle. Like people love the very long, like Lord of the Rings, the very short TikTok videos. Uh, but again, every era does better at different things. If we do worse at some things, as long as we're innovating in other ways, and I think we are, you know, gaming would be one example. Uh, I'm fine with that. You're not going to have Russian novels every decade get better and better. Yeah, I'm a bit of a romantic about that. <laughs> yeah, as Tolstoy recedes into the past, uh, maybe it just gets less attention. But look, people I know have read it. It's not some secret that you you can't get. Maybe too many people used to read it and were bored. And now, like, just the right number of people are reading it. I'm not sure, but I'm just saying, like, I don't just always assume more Tolstoy readers is this good thing. I don't think it is. It's fair. So uh, jumping from, from flitting from thing to thing, we're living in this era of relative abundance comparatively to human history. Caloric, health, you know, even the pandemic uh, has been a massively disruptive human event, but in terms of sheer lethality relative to things that killed lots of people at multiple times in the past, you know, this does not rank up there in, you know, in the global league of worst case scenarios for humankind. But you'd be hard pressed to find that sentiment in much of the world. I mean, it's hard to know what. Chinese public opinion is. I mean, for a while, it seemed like people in China appreciated the fact that 
political freedoms may be completely absent, but in terms of material security and conditions, it was probably better to be in China at any point in the 2010s than it would have been at almost any point in the 19th or 20th century. And people tended to feel that way, right, viscerally. Right. Why do you think that there is, certainly in, in the face of economic abundance, badly distributed inequalities, absolutely, why do you think there is an increasing amount, particularly in the most affluent parts of the world, uh, despair and disgruntledness and dyspepsia? First, I'm never sure what is the absolute level of despair. It's very hard to measure. There are many extreme claims made about it. Most of those claims, in my view, are unsupported. It doesn't mean they're wrong. I think the, the world as a whole, again, the immediate demands of COVID aside, world as a whole probably has never been as optimistic mm. as it is right now or has been in the last five years. Certainly, if you look at social indicators for educated Americans, they've mostly been going up. Now, alternatively, it's a huge problem that for those without a ed college education or high school education, they've often been going down. But the fact that for so much of the country, they've been going up suggests the story is not pure despair, but rather there's some kind of split we need to think of ways of getting more people across that divide. That's like a super large problem, maybe our number one problem. I don't like have the fix for it. But all of a sudden, it sounds pretty doable. And there's more talent today than ever before, more technology. Like, I think we can make very real progress on that. Well, I'll tell you, you made a point. I think it was on Barry Weiss's podcast that uh, I saw on Twitter uh, that <laughs> I really loved. So as Andy Warhol pointed out, you know, basically I drink the same Coca-Cola that Bill Gates does. I think my smartphone is as good as his. His laptop, you know, maybe it's a bit better or he optimizes it in some ways. But, you know, I'm in the running there. So he can fly private and he can buy, you know, a Paul Cezanne painting that I can't. But in terms of actual living standards, there's much more equality than either income or wealth numbers are going to indicate. And I found that point like strangely psychologically comforting. And I was wondering how to, you know, sort of expand that point into the narrative a little bit more. Well, I would I would even trump my own point. I think I have a better life because he is lacking in freedom. Mm. Uh, people of that level of wealth typically have to go around with security details. And yes, I'm sure you get used to it, but I think it's an unpleasantness, both having the detail around you and the fact that you need the detail that doesn't go away. You can't just wander through public and do what you want to do. I can do that. I'll be able to do that for the rest of my life. Now, is that worth more than say A plus quality yachts and a private jet and some other things? Like you get the world's best brain surgeon if you need it. Uh, I suspect it is. Fewer people hate me. Like there's millions of people out there right now who think Bill Gates is trying to control their brain mm. with microchip or, again, he, he may be used to that to a considerable degree, but it's not like you grow up wishing, gee, I, I hope millions hate me for wanting to control their brains with microchips. <laughs> like it's a bad thing and it's not his fault, but he suffers under that. Even I suffer under things like that a bit, actually, but not like he does. So arguably, I have a better life. It's an interesting point you make about it's unclear how much like despair and pessimism there is. You know, there are public opinion surveys. Gallup, as you know, has done... I guess for 70, 80 years, uh, how do you feel about the economy and you come up with a, a plus or minus, you know, the amount of people, the differential between the amount of people feeling good and the amount of people feeling bad. And certainly they've, other than the 1990s, it's been pretty much downhill from there in terms of sentiment about 
how the economy is doing. It's been pretty negative. It actually started crawling back into pretty positive territory toward the end of 2019. Then there's the partisanness around it, right? Democrats think the economy sucks when a Republican is in the White House, and Republicans think the economy sucks when a Democrat's in the White House. But it's, it is still an interesting point of, are we amplifying divisions and partisanness and despair, mostly because the public arenas where we get to have those conversations are either the media or politics, both of which put a premium on conflict and not the opposite? Yeah. I don't think we should jump at either the optimistic Steven Pinker view or all the negative views out there. I think we genuinely don't know. But some of it may be our standards have gone up. So if you asked me when I was 23, like, Tyler, how good is your record collection? I would have said, oh, it's awesome. Like it was sort of good for a 23-year-old. Now I have a much better music collection. You ask me how good it is, and I'd be like, well, I've spent a lot of time on YouTube. You know, I'm, I'm glad I have... YouTube and everything, because compared to that, like my collection, it's actually kind of puny, but I enjoy more music, more time, more choice than when I was 23. But if you ask me, like, how good is your stuff? I'd be like, well, you know, YouTube's better. So I'm not saying that's the only thing going on here, but I think it's very hard to draw inferences from what people say. Very hard. Well, I mean, on the record collection thing, I mean, the joke is when you were 23, someone would come over and they, you would say, do you want to listen to some music? And they would say, sure, what do you have? And you'd show them your collection, right? Today, someone comes over and you say, do you want to listen to some music? And and if they bother to ask, what do you have? The answer is everything. I have everything. Because all I need to do is go onto any app, you know, Spotify. I guess Spotify doesn't have Neil Young anymore. <laughs> but satellite radio <laughs> does, right? <laughs> but basically you have everything. And that's true increasingly for everything. That's the Bill Gates point, right? Like all right. we we in in many of the things that we want and need, we all have everything of. And I'm not sure human beings are wired for that, right? We're kind of wired for scarcity. I think we will learn how to deal with it. I think this new world, the the value of having self-control is much higher. Like drugs are more intoxicating, more addictive than they used to be. Marijuana is stronger. There's better types of alcohol available to get addicted to. Better ways of wasting your time. Pornography is everywhere online. And people who stay disciplined, you know, stick to their information extraction. It's not everyone, but they have a huge advantage. And we need to learn to get more people across that divide and teach more people beneficial self-control. It's one reason why I think religion might make a comeback. I think too, it helps as like a shock to the system of realizing everything that's at your fingertips. I live in Greece now and I spend an inordinate amount of time explaining to people that I can only watch Netflix and that there is no Amazon. And it's really true that you do not realize how convenient your life is when you live in a country that truly has everything until you're not. Is the absence of Amazon starting to erode your resolve to remain in Greece? No, I actually really like it for a few different reasons. One is that there's a delayed gratification that, you know, your packages don't come in two days. They come in three weeks, maybe if you're lucky, but then when they do come, you're so excited. It's so much more exciting than the Amazon package coming. And you really feel like you accomplished something, like you're really receiving something of value. Which is sort of Tyler's point, learning how to ration, learning how to appreciate what is and not just leap at it because it's all there. This might be what I would use as my standard, but I get that it's highly imperfect. If you just ask the simple question, people who are migrating with their whole lives for the rest of their lives, they're bringing their kids, their future grandkids. To the extent they have free choice, where do they want to go? 
I think that's the best standard we have for like which societies are good or well run or make sense. And if you look at where they want to go, I mean, you know this, it's no surprise. It's like North America, London, etc. And I think that's overall the right answer. Like those are better places for all their problems. Yes. Well, let's hope that the United States in particular remains receptive to that draw and not, you know, doesn't go in the direction that it's gone in in the 1920s and has done in the 1880s where we translate our own insecurity about social cohesion and economic future into a please don't come. But even if we don't let them come, the fact that they want to tells us something, right? Well, that's true. That's true. The aspirational part is is indicative of something, even if we're not yeah. as receptive to it. And I put more weight on that than like what current whiny Americans say when you ask them, oh, are you happy? Or like, that's what it matters a little, but I don't know. Like your own answers are a bit, you're talking about other issues in your life so often. And you're trying to build out some emotional portfolio. You say things aren't that great, so you're not that disappointed. And it's this very complex kind of managing your own emotions game. But just ask, like an emigrate from Mumbai with an engineering degree, what country they actually want to go to? I put more weight on that. So final uh, valedictory question for you. You mentioned that you have a granddaughter now. And this is probably not the simplest question, but I'm sure given you that you've thought about some of this, which is if you had to think about the world you want 30 years from now when that granddaughter is uh, you know, a young woman, what, what world do you want and what world do you think is likely for that person? Well, a lot of her initial contacts with the outside world will come through school systems, right? I want her to have school systems that give a damn about their students more than so many of ours seem to have over the last two years. That's like my big immediate want. I do see a lot of progress in the works on this issue. A lot of people upset, people taking action, people sort of have woken up and realized the system doesn't really stand for them and their kids. I don't think those final outputs of the solutions have been delivered, but that they are delivered in time by the time she's going to, to school. That's really what I want. Well, I, I certainly hope we get our collective act together on that score as well. So Tyler, thank you so much for having this conversation. Uh, you're one of these people who, you know, this would be much better over uh, over a meal and wine for several more hours. But given the limitations of podcasts and uh, virtual wine and dinner not being nearly as satisfying, I think we'll have to leave it as an open conversation for the future. But we'll see each other again. And uh, nice to meet you, Emma. Nice to meet you as well, Tyler. And uh, an honor to do this with you all. Thank you so much. That was a lot of fun. Uh, hopefully we cover as much breath as, as Tyler does himself on his website and his podcast. But one thing that stuck out to me that he mentioned that we didn't get to pick up on was his take on the comeback of religion, which I think is really interesting, which might seem ominous to some folks. To me, it sounds like we could use a dose of discipline and um, self-control, like he was saying. But I don't know. What do you think? Like, Do you think, A, that it's going to make a comeback? And B, is that a good thing? I guess it depends on what religion we're talking about. Mm. There's plenty <laughs> of... there's. I mean, the United States is unusual in its degree of religious affiliation and religious participation. Mostly decentralized, lots of different Protestant sects, lots of different ancillary religions floating around there. But I mean, America is a pretty 
on those definitions, religious place, I, I don't know that that has made us a better place. And there are certainly large swaths of the Middle East that are particularly religious, and that has led to, as it did in Europe for centuries, you know, a degree of, of conflict rather than consensus. So depends on the religion. I, I think maybe a, a more, <laughs> this is your bailiwick, Emma, more of a religion as a practice of mindfulness, mm. mindfulness of ourselves, mindfulness of our communities, mindfulness of the need for some sort of balance, mindfulness that we can't all get our way, that there are other people out there who also want to get their way. And to the degree that some religions, Buddhism in particular, but every religion has those seeds of an ethical life, an enjoined ethical life, that could be great. But that doesn't, in my mind, always follow in sync with what we think of as religion. Yeah, I mean, there's a big debate about this in Buddhism in terms of like modernized, westernized Buddhism being a very different breed of Buddhism than what you would traditionally call Buddhism in various Asian countries. Exactly. I mean, it might be the, the, just the thing we need for the times, who knows? <laughs> but the other thing that's coming to, what more easily I think comes to people's minds when we think about religion coming into play, especially with the depopulation conversation we had and convincing women to get pregnant is very the handmaid's tale s oh yeah that is what's coming to my mind and yeah. i don't know if we can dispel that image for people maybe and it's probably why that that show and that book have had such a contemporary resonance and revival for those very reasons you know the fear that that's what it will in fact lead to and not to my more rosy scenario of plenty of stuff for fewer people rather than not enough stuff for too many people the other thing, I mean, what that the the point of the Tyler conversation of uh, what was it, I, I, information extraction engine or extracting yeah, information? Yeah, that's fun. his greatest pleasure is extracting information. <laughs> I think the one thing that is probably applicable to everybody is in an information laden age, other than choosing to completely tune out, which has significant costs in your ability to kind of navigate the world that you're in, learning how to be that for yourself, learning how to most effectively mindfully in a balanced way navigate that sea of information without losing your mind right which you've been writing about a lot how to how to read the news without losing your mind mm -hmm. tyler's a great example of that but he's probably also an unfair example of that because it's you know he's sort of a, a savant in that world where most other people are have have a much harder time staying afloat in that particular sea. Right, so like, what's the advice for like the regular Joe Schmo who is not going to be able to speed read through the news? And I think for me, one of those, one of the answers there is like, find a curation machine that you trust, right? Like whatever that curation technique is or whoever it might be, if it's good, it's good, right? Like it can do, it can help do that job for you. Right. And, and the danger of someone like Tyler giving that advice, it's like an Olympic slalom skier saying, no, 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 just tilt on the edges a little more, you'll be fine. And you're like, I'm I'm worried about not dying while right. I get down the mountain. <laughs> There's a giant mound in front of me. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, he's a fascinating, polymathic, interesting voice. And I do love the way in which he remains flexible and nimble and willing to change his mind. And I think as an operating principle that, that we've tried to start with, uh, be humble enough about what one doesn't know and be flexible enough to adapt what you think and how you view the world based on how the world itself is evolving rather than trying to impose upon it a rigid framework and, and slotting 
all of your analysis of all of reality into it. And in many ways, the pessimistic mindset, I do love this in, in David Deutsch's work, has a kind of an arrogance of certainty that you know how things are gonna go, as opposed to a humbleness of, you know, things could turn out differently than I expect. They could turn out worse, they could turn out better, they could turn out some messy combination of all of the above, and that we all need to continue to be mindful of what we don't know and of what is possible in the future. Thank you, Emma, for having this conversation with me, as always. Yeah, thank you, Zachary.